Well, John has been ministering to us from his word on one of the highest and holiest subjects we could focus our attention, and that is the worship of Almighty God. And in one very real sense, theologically, we will go to the opposite end of the spectrum and view that that is dark, foreboding, awful, and blasphemous, the person of Satan and his work in the world. But I would preface all that I'll say today and in days to come by this passage from the book of James. Let me just read it to you. James 4, verses 7 and 8. It says, Submit therefore to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near unto you. Before we begin our look at Satan and his work in the world, I would remind us that the greatest way to ward off the attacks of Satan and to defeat him before he ever begins in our life is to submit to God and draw near unto Him in unswerving commitment and in righteous worship. And Satan says the Word of God in all ways and every day will flee from you and me. Our studies this Lord's Day and the next will come from Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 to 7. If passages of the Word of God were ranked in the top 10, certainly Genesis 3, 1 to 7 would rank in that category. Seminal in its subject, pregnant in all that it has to say, and it is out of that that all the Word of God expands. And all that God has to say to you and me, the people who by nature live in sin and are in need of redemption and rescue by the Savior, Jesus Christ. The year was 1911. The country was England. The lawyer named Charles Dawson was pursuing his favorite hobby, fossil hunting, in a quarry nearby his home and he made what he believed to be some significant discoveries. It was near the village of Piltdown in Essex that he unearthed fragments of a fossilized skull. Then, his excitement, he contacted the British Museum and asked if someone might come down and verify his findings. Arthur Woodward, who was keeper of the Department of Geology at the British Museum, responded. He evaluated the discovery as true, and a year later, 1912, it was displayed in the British Museum as a 500,000-year-old relic named Eontropos Dawsoni, or Dawson's Dawn Man, named after its discoverer. Many scientists at the time questioned its authenticity, but the British Museum continually proudly displayed the skull as the first known ancient fossil of man found in Britain. Thirty-seven years passed until a gentleman by the name of Kenneth Oakley, a scientist at the museum, decided to reopen the investigation of the Piltdown Man and the alleged fossilized skull. And through a series of chemical analyses that were impossible to do back in the early part of the century, 
he discovered that the Piltdown Man was in fact a rather ancient upper portion of the skull that had been skillfully and cleverly pieced together with the jawbone of a modern ape. And in a moment of time through scientific inquiry, one of the then most highly reputed evidences for the evolution of man vanished into thin air as nothing but a hoax that had been perpetrated upon the scientific community by, in fact, a scientist himself. Oakley published his report in 1953, which was to the horror of the scientific community and the British government, and in part it read like this, and I quote him, from the evidence which we've obtained, it's now clear that the distinguished paleontologist and archaeologist who took part in the excavations at Piltdown were the victims of a most elaborate and carefully planned hoax. And so it is in the world in which we live, deceived by the shams of our century. But it's been that way through the ages. The Bible is not without its hoaxes also. Genesis 27, we can read of Jacob, who fooled his father Isaac into giving him the blessing instead of his older brother Esau. Genesis 33, Simeon and Levi tricked the residents of Shechem into being circumcised so that their sister Dinah could marry into that society only to slay the men in their distress. Genesis 38, Tamar tricked her father-in-law Judah into believing that she was a roadside prostitute, and he lay with her. However, the greatest hoax known in all of human history that's had the most devastating effect upon the human race is found in the chapter that we'll be looking at in the next two weeks. For there Satan, the master of deceit, conned Eve into thinking and then acting independently of God and traveling rapidly into the realm of sin from which the human race has attempted ever since to extract itself. Our first parents, Adam and Eve, were victimized by the devil, his trickery, and Genesis 3, 1-7 tells us all about it. If you're not there, I would invite you to join me there, and let's read that passage together. Genesis 3, 1 to 7. I'll read it for us. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, as God said, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden. And the woman responded to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat from it or touch it, lest you die. And the serpent said to the woman, you shall surely not die, for God knows in the day that you eat from it, your eyes will be open, and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate. She gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. And then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves a loin covering. That was the beginning of an attack upon the kingdom of God that has lasted from those opening days of human history 
until the very end of the millennium, which is at least a thousand and seven years away from where we live today. At which time, you can read about it, Revelation 20, God takes Satan and the remnant of his rebellious followers and casts them all into the lake of fire, where they'll live in torment for all of eternity. In my study of the Word of God, and particularly the person of Satan and his workings in the world, I've been led to believe that he has four major objectives to accomplish, particularly in the lives that have named the name of Christ the Savior. You might want to jot them down. Let me give them to you very, very quickly. I think they'll make a good grid through which to think through not only in our time together, but also in times ahead as you would engage in your own independent study in the Word of God and see if they're not true. Number one is Satan would desire deeply to distort or deny the truth of God's Word. He did it in the garden and he continued to do it throughout all of time. Number two, his desire is to discredit the testimony of God's people much like he did to Ananias and Sapphira. Acts 5 is the first major dark blot of sin stain upon the church. Thirdly, is to destroy the believer's enthusiasm for God's work, to cause you and me to be so weighed down by the circumstances of our life or depressed and defeated by who we perceive ourselves to be that we think God can do nothing profitable through us, and even though we're redeemed, we're not worthy to work in the kingdom. And four, if he fails in all of the other three, to dilute the effectiveness of God's people, that is to cause us to be persons who are about the king's business, we're moving, we're talking, but all to no avail, because we've left the priority ministries and instructions that God has given us. And even though he knows the victory will not ultimately be his, if he takes the word of God at face value, he is out to persistently do all that he can to minimize the impact and effect that God Almighty desires to have upon his kingdom on earth. Satan's modus operandi centers on having you and I believe contrary to the Word of God. Now, I want you to watch this carefully. If, if I miss this, I'll lose me and everybody else for two whole Sunday mornings, and I don't want to do that. He wants you and I to believe contrary to the Word of God with our minds, and knowing that He's captured our minds, that the created process of our very being will then lead us into disobedience and behavior that is totally contradictory to the will of God. Now, Satan knows Proverbs 23, 7. And it says this, For as a man thinks within him, so he becomes. We have Christ's mind, 1 Corinthians 2, 16. The indwelling Spirit of God and the revealed Word of God. And it's in this that we know the mind of God and the thoughts of God. And as we will think them through, so we will become like Him. But if Satan can somehow force us to think contrary to the Word of God, 
and develop a mentality other than the mind of God, He will cause you and me to become something other than the person of Jesus Christ in a growing, maturing way, growing in the grace and knowledge of our Savior. That was the very thing we will see not only in Genesis 3, but throughout all of redemptive history revealed in the Word of God when a believer fell into sin, Adam and Eve, Peter, others. It was because their mind dwelt upon and began to believe that that was contrary to the Word of God. And in a very real sense, the battle you and I fight in the front lines is a battle for our minds. And either God will win because our minds have been literally washed in the purity of His Word and reprogrammed to think like Him, or you and I will be patsies and slaves of the prince of the power of the air and the king of darkness. To do that, that would be displeasing to God and unprofitable for his kingdom. It's a difficult battle we fight. Paul warned the Corinthians about it in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. There is no church in the New Testament that was written to any more directly in words of condemnation that pointed them to being patsies for Satan than the church at Corinth. They were a church of extremes. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, there had been a believer who had sinned and had rightfully been disfellowshipped from the congregation as an act of love, only that they might repent and be restored to the fellowship. And the Corinthians had carried that out completely. But when that person repented and had received the forgiveness of their Father in heaven, and the Apostle Paul, the Corinthians, failed to receive that person back into the church. They left them out in the world. And Paul writes and says this in 2 Corinthians 2.11. Let me just read it to you. He says, I'm giving you these instructions. Receive that repentant one back in order that no advantage be taken of us by Satan. For we are not ignorant of his schemes. And that last little phrase is crucially important to you and me. The Corinthians were not ignorant of his schemes, and because we have the same revealed Word of God today, you and I are not ignorant of the schemes of Satan. The word that's translated schemes is the word naemata, and it talks about the mindset. And it says that revealed in the Word is the mindset of Satan that he would use to ensnare and trap and neutralize the people of God. And throughout the Word of God are scattered 20-plus schemes of Satan, or mindsets, if you would, which portray what Satan would want us to think, contrary to the Word of God, that we might behave disobedient to the will of God. We want to look at just one of those in Genesis 3, verses 1 to 7, but it's really the prototype, and it's out of that that Satan has developed his entire arsenal of tactics by which he attacks God's people. In Ephesians 6.11, Paul says, Put on the full armor of God that ye might stand firm against the King James' wiles, New American Standards' his schemes. It's an entirely different word. The Greek word is 
Methodeos. We get our English word method from it. And I would suggest to you that Satan has an infinite number of methods and combinations, almost like the Rubik's Cube, four billion combinations plus of his methods that he can use, but they'll all be reduced into the mindsets or the schemes, the wrong thinking that will cause wrong living that we find revealed in the Word of God. And in our time together, we really do want to expose ourselves to Genesis 3, and then on February 7th, after John has been back a week and finished his series on worship, we want to go to the venerable patriarch, the greatest man in the East, Job, as Satan attempted to foist upon him and make accusations that he was guilty of the 20th century error of the theology of health and wealth. And that's the only reason he worshiped God. And then our time together, look at the two most ancient schemes that Satan pulled on God's people. But I think before we go any further, we've painted a rather dismal picture, haven't we? And uh, you might be afraid to leave the, the worship center for fear that you'll be attacked before you get beyond the pillars. Before we go any further, I think it might be good to take just a moment and encourage your hearts and review what God has provided for you and me, that we can answer the question, on whose side are we? And sing out, we are on the Lord's side. God sent a liberator. His name is Jesus Christ, and he came to destroy the works of Satan, says 1 John 3.8. The Son of Man appeared, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Not only did he come to liberate the world population from sin and destroy the works of Satan, but God has given us a battle plan. We read it in James 4. Submit to God. Resist Satan. Draw near unto God, and Satan will flee. He's provided the armor, Ephesians 6. We've been ordered to put on the panoply, the whole armor of God, that we might stand firm and ward off the fiery darts of Satan. Into our hands has been delivered the enemy's tactics book. We will know the schemes of Satan if we'll but take time to read it. And he's promised us a superior supporting power. For 1 John 4.4 4 says, Ye are of God, little children. And greater is he that's in you than he that's in the world. And I just want to encourage you, before we dive into the battlefield and into the pit, to see the awfulness of the hand-to-hand -hand combat that Satan engaged Adam and Eve in, that God has provided for the human race. The only question is, will you, will I, avail ourselves of all that God has given to us. Can you remember back when you were a brand new Christian, first saved, and maybe like me, didn't know a thing about the Bible? And maybe you came up with the idea that I need to know the book, and, and you, we always read books from beginning to end, so I'll start at Genesis and read all the way through Revelation. And you got started, and, and you read Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2, and when you got done, you said, what a wonderful world. 
God saw that all that he created was good. And here was a wonderful man and woman who had become one flesh living together. And you might have been asking the question at that point in your reading, how in the world did the world that I live in get into the shape it's in when it was so wonderful then? Why do we need a Redeemer and a Rescuer if God created it in such a perfect state? The answer to that question can really come from two sources. And one is that that maybe was your first clue, and that is observation of the world around you. And you look, and you saw the advanced, sophisticated stages of sin. You saw people who were self-centered rather than having their heart and mind focused upon God. You saw people who were self-sufficient and not dependent upon the redeeming grace of Jesus Christ. And you saw people who were self-willed, not controlled and submitted to the Spirit of God. Mark Croker will be coming tonight and Bob Vernon next Sunday night just to give us some insights into that world in which we live and that that we view day in and day out. And I know that their time will be incredibly instructive and just put you and me that much more on our guard as we walk through life to realize it is a battlefield. And even though the enemy himself is invisible, the fruits of his efforts are all around us, unmistakable in their nature. Well, we can answer your question, how did the world get in such an awful mess by observation, just to say that it is. But more important, we could answer it by revelation. And we would not have to read but the very next chapter, Genesis 3, to discover that Adam and Eve's probation in the garden had been violated. Fellowship with God was broken. Worship had been halted. God's image in man was shattered. The natural world was catapulted into chaos. The human race for all time had been poisoned. The home was fractured. Satan was exalted. Rebellion against God was heightened. History was diabolically directed, God was slandered, and a Redeemer needed to be slain. Quite a contrast. And the question we really need to answer is how did it all happen in Genesis 3, 1-7 tells us. And of that passage, the great Puritan theologian Thomas Watson wrote this. He lived in about 1650. And he was the Charles Swindoll of the 17th century. He said this, Sin fetches its pedigree from hell. Sin is of the devil. Sin was the first actor of sin. Satan was the first actor of sin. And the first tempter to sin. Sin is the devil's firstborn. And we make no mistake about it. Satan was the one who spawned sin and introduced it into the world through our parents, Adam and Eve. And from that illegitimate offspring named Sin has come forth other equally disastrous children. The devil's philosophy, which is labeled humanism. Humanism making man the very center of its entire mental focus. And I would quote from the Humanist Manifesto, issued in its second form, 1973, just to give you a taste 
of the way Satan's world thinks. And I quote, We believe, however, that traditional, dogmatic, or authoritarian religions that place revelation, God, ritual, or creed above human needs and experience do a disservice to the human species. Any account of nature should pass the test of scientific evidence. In our judgment, the dogmas and myths of traditional religions do not do so. Even at this late date in human history, certain elementary facts based upon the critical use of scientific reason have to be restated. We find insufficient evidence for belief in the existence of a supernatural. It's either meaningless or irrelevant to the question of the survival and fulfillment of the human race. As non-theists, we begin with humans, not God. Nature, not deity. Nature may indeed be broader and deeper than we now know. Any new discoveries, however, will but enlarge our knowledge of the natural. Some of the finest minds in the world signed that document. They come from the world of academia, social science, physical science, the business world, government, Many of the names you would know, Isaac Isamoff, Joseph Fletcher, father of situational ethics, Betty Frieden, mother of the National Organization for Women, Julian Huxley, the high priest of evolution, B.F. Skinner, the father of modern humanistic psychology. Those and many more would say this, we find insufficient evidence for belief in the existence of a supernatural. It's either meaningless or irrelevant to our inquiries. The mind of Satan that he's about to pull over the mind of Eve that has been perpetuated until the time that we live and espoused by some of the most intelligent but foolish people that have ever lived in our time. Well, if the devil's religion, or philosophy rather, is humanism, then his religion is utter atheism, or could be otherwise defined as Satanism. Not long ago, in one of our local papers, an atheist wrote to clarify his position, and I thought you might enjoy it. And I quote him. He says, We see no evidence for a God, and no compelling reason to believe in what does not seem to exist. For this reason, we realize our responsibility as intelligent and aware beings to direct our own lives. We recognize no dogma because we see that truth is relative and that with new data, our concepts often need to be modified or changed. We waste no time trying to appease and worship an unknowable deity, but strive to bring happiness to ourselves, our family, and our friends and worship life only. We do not ask that a person reject reason and the evidence before him for blind faith, nor do we claim mankind a pitiful creature in need of forgiveness and salvation. And my friends, those words come straight from the mouth of Satan and from the pit of hell. Jesus said in Matthew 12:30, He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. And whether you are atheist, agnostic, or worshiper of any other false deity, God says that without Christ, you'll never know the Father and the joy of eternal life. 1 John 2.23 says, Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father, and the one who confesses the Son has the Father also. 
The only way to the Father, said Jesus, is through the Son, John 14, 6. Well, all of these 20th century expressions that we've just introduced by way of illustration are blasphemies that found their genesis and their beginning in the garden named Eden. And it's to there we turn to look rather thoroughly in Genesis 3, verses 1 to 7. It's opening night at the Eden Playhouse. It's Satan's premier performance. He's attempting to poison Eve's mind with the scheme of sensualism, which in a very real sense becomes that prototype out of which all the rest of his schemes will come. And he begins in the first half of verse 1 with a disguised arrival. Now the text says that the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And I would suggest to you that we have every reason to believe that the serpent, the Nakash, in its pre-fall form was in fact a very real animal. Nakash is used 30 times in the Old Testament, and every time it's used in reality or in representation of that that was known as a very true serpent. The word literally has the idea of a copper color or a brilliance, and also carry with it the very possible meaning of that that would utter a hissing sound. But I would suggest to you that 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 Eve encountered was very real. And so real that the text says it was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. Of all of the beasts that he created, the one who was superlative in the category of prudence was the serpent that Eve encountered. The word translated crafty can be used in either a positive or a negative sense, depending on the context. It's translated prudence in Proverbs 15.5 and 19.25 and used in a very wonderful, good sense. But it also has a very negative connotation. In Exodus 21.14, it's used of the cunning of a murderer. In Joshua 9.4, of the Gibeonites who tricked the Israelites into making a covenant with them rather than slaughtering them as God commanded. In Psalm 83.3, it's used of God's enemies. And 2 Corinthians 11.2 says it was Satan, that serpent of old, who cunningly deceived Eve in the garden. The New Testament interprets what God means in Genesis 3. It was a very real pre-fall serpent who came in a cunning, crafty, sly way to do Eve under not to have Eve's best interest at heart. Well, the passage at this point raises some incredible questions. There are several I think we need to answer this morning just to help you along through the passage and understand what has happened. Who in the world is this unique serpent? Just who is he? Isaiah 27.1 says he's Leviathan, who one day will meet his eternal demise. But 2 Corinthians 11, verses 3 to 14, identifies who that serpent is and names him as Satan and the devil of old. 
as does Revelation 12.9 and Revelation 22. They all identify the serpent of Genesis 3 as the one named Satan or adversary or devil, slanderer. For the conclusion of this message, please turn your tape to side two. Question number two. Who is Satan? Now that we know what his name is, and I would suggest to you without any great elaboration, you can look the text up, that Satan is a created being. So says Ezekiel 28. Created of the angelic rank, and in a moment of time so puffed up with pride, says Isaiah 14, that he said, I would become like the Most High. And in that moment of pride, which God calls an abomination in Proverbs 16.5, Satan morally fell and took with him in his rebellion one-third of the angels of heaven. Revelation chapter 12, verse 4. And in our passage, he appears as an enemy of God in rebellion against righteous holiness to enlist the aid of Adam and Eve in his rebellion against God. And to do it, he has to deceive her into becoming alienated from God and thus a candidate for the team on which Satan serves as captain. Third question that we could answer was, how in the world could a real serpent somehow be teamed up with a real spiritual being named Satan who was a created, morally fallen angel? Well, the Bible never exactly tells us, but I would suggest to you, based on other examples we have in the Scripture, that in all likelihood, Satan entered the serpent, much as the demons left the demoniac and entered the swine, or as much as Satan entered into Judas so that he might go and he might sell Christ for a few pieces of silver. It would be no problem for Satan to do that and then to utter out his own words from that animal who by its own power could merely hiss, as we know, by its name. And just as God spoke through the donkey to Balaam, so Satan, having really indwelt or possessed the serpent, spoke in an utterly deceptive and disguised way to her so she would not fully realize with whom she was actually dealing. Maybe one more question we could answer, and that's this. Why did he talk to the woman alone and not to Adam and Eve together or to the man alone? That's a really good question. And it comes at the very heart of his cunning. First Peter chapter 3, verse 7 admonishes you and me, men who are married, to know our wives in a full way. Because our wives are, I would rather translate it delicate or fragile rather than weak, although that's the way it's normally translated, is the weaker vessel. They're more fragile, they're more delicate, they certainly are different by the design of God's creation. 
And 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 2, again would lead us into believing that one of the differences was the mind of woman was more open to and susceptible to theological deception. And I would believe that as Satan created on the first day, and you can read about that in Job 38 or Psalm 148 or Nehemiah 9.6, Ezekiel 28 verses 13 and 15, watched on the sixth day as God created man and woman, perhaps even conversed about God with it, and knew the strengths, the weaknesses, and the capacities of who she was, and then deigned in his own mind to go to the very weakest link and try to break through there. Now, he probably knew as well as we do Ecclesiastes 4, 9 to 12. Let me read it to you. It says, Two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. For if either of them falls, the one will lift up his companion. But woe to the one who falls when there's not another to lift him up. Furthermore, if two lie down together, they keep warm. But how can one be warm alone? And if one can overpower him who is alone, then two can resist him. And Satan knew that the two together would be the strongest crew that he could attack. And thus it was not a viable alternative. He knew the man would be stronger when it came to theological truth and discerning right from wrong. So he said that's not a viable alternative. The only other choice he had was Eve. And it was to Eve that he came because he thought his chances of success in enlisting her to his side would be best. And thus we see a talking serpent casually encountering a lovely lady who was merely strolling in the righteous holy garden of Eden. Seems rather innocent and pure, just as we open it up and read that first verse. The serpent was more prudent than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And in that walk through the garden, he said to the woman, Indeed hath God said, Ye shall not eat from any tree of the garden. What an innocent inquiry. Almost like Peter Falk in Colombo. You remember his little, would you mind if I just ask one more question, just to make sure I have the facts right? Or Jack Webb and Dragnet, just the facts, ma'am, just the facts. You know, Shakespeare had it right about Satan. In King Lear, he said that the prince of darkness is a gentleman. And I'm sure he came well-dressed. And I personally believe that's why he chose the serpent to indwell. Not only magnified his character, but it also had all of the attractive brilliance that would gain Eve's attention and ear. I'm sure he had mastered the king's English and gave off the impression, all I want to do is no truth. Won't you join me in a dialogue? But I would suggest to you that Satan is the epitome of the guerrilla fighter. He's Mao, Ho Chi Minh, Castro, Arafat, Gaddafi, and more all rolled up into one who cunningly is attempting to cause the world population to be on his side in utter rebellion against the kingdom of God. Now let's stop here 
And let me show you what Satan has already done to hook Eve to bite the bait and be utterly brought to Satan's side. Number one, he had used the principle of divide to conquer. Every guerrilla fighter of the 20th century has used that principle. You know where they learned it? Satan in the garden, Genesis 3. And I might add that it magnifies the value of mutual accountability. It is a husband and wife who are one flesh, and a local congregation who are one body in Christ, children who are one with their parents and parents who are one with their children. For if Satan can single you out and make you an individual, you are just a sitting duck for the shots of Satan. Well, that's number one. Number two is he surprised Eve with this unscheduled garden encounter. Now, I don't believe that daytimers or schedule calendars had yet been invented. And I don't believe that they had planned to meet at three in the garden just to discuss a theological issue. Satan came at, for him, the most opportune moment where he could take Eve by the greatest surprise and thus keep her off balance. It was the totally unexpected for no other animal had ever come to her in the garden to talk because the animals could not talk and communicate in the language of human beings that had been created in the image of God so they might have fellowship with him. Thirdly, he appeared as a friend in need. He needed to know some things about God, and thus he made that apparent inquiry. And so very, very valuable to you and me, is to know the Word of God so that we might be discerning of the motives and the ways of the people with whom you and I would have contact. And in all of that preliminary, which he's used to begin to draw her and her mind unto himself, he says, has God said, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? King James says, yea, hath God said... And it would appear he was just asking to learn. Nothing wrong with that, is there? Just want to verify what I heard in the seminary lounge the other day. Is this really what God said? But if we would look carefully at the Hebrew construction of the passage, it's really a question of ridicule and not a question of research. He is not asking to know, but he's asking that he might cunningly detour Eve's mind. The New International Version captured it best. And they wrote this. Did God really say you must not eat from any tree of the garden? you got to be kidding, Eve. Did God really say that? And poor Eve. Well, let's see. Adam gave me that lesson. If I can remember writing it down in my notes. I think that's what he said. But boy, this guy's got a question. And he's good-looking, and he asks the right question. And maybe he's got a degree or two, or a position in life. You see what he did? Just that little, little seed of doubt. But what is Eve to do? This guy obviously believes in God, because he's asking about him. But you know, she failed to ask the real question. And that is, my friend, before I answer, would you just tell me one thing? Do you without reservation believe with all your heart 
the trueness and the trustworthiness of the words that are uttered from the mind and lips of God? She failed to ask that question, and thus she answered, Satan, and she has gone from the disguise in which Satan appeared to the doubt which Satan planted by his predetermined deceiving question to enter into dialogue with Satan, which will prove to be absolutely deadly. And we see it in verse 2 and 3. She says, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat from it, or touch it, lest you die. Is that what God really said? Let's turn back to chapter 2, verses 16 and 17 just for the record. It tells us there that the Lord God commanded the man, saying, from any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat from it, you shall surely, with utter absolute certainty, die. If you were to compare Genesis 2 with Genesis 3, you would begin to see that while it's a reasonable facsimile, the way in which Eve represented God took all of the certainty, all of the authority, and all of the immediacy totally out of the statement. And no doubt she was so overwhelmed and awed by this intelligent, brilliant thinker that has come to find out about God, that she said, just to maintain my respectability, I'll just kind of water it down a little bit and just kind of give him the gist of what God said so it doesn't sound quite so harsh. Well, it does sound kind of harsh, doesn't it? No doubt influenced by the ridicule and Satan's obvious fanciful revision for the question he asked is, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden. And Eve was quick to point out, no, God didn't prohibit all the trees, just, just one. The one that's out there in the middle. Can you imagine living in a world that only had one no-no? I cannot get to the end of my street without running into a no-no. It's called a stop sign. Stop before you proceed. And they lived in a holy, pure, perfect world they could do anything they wanted, go anywhere they wanted, eat anything they wanted, except the fruit from this just one dinky little tree out in the middle, named the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. How wonderful that would be. Only one prohibition out of it all. And with that one prohibition, Satan is beginning to have Eve even rethink it. Because maybe it's not just quite as bad as it's made up to be. And maybe the consequences won't be quite as disastrous. And ultimately, and we're going to see this next week, she's going to think through it with her own mind and without the Word of God, and Satan is going to win the victory. But it might be good if we took just a quick moment to compare what God had said in chapter 2, how Eve repeated what God had said in chapter 3, and see where she really went astray. When I went through this passage, it only heightened my deep 
desire to not only know the Word of God, but to know the Word of God accurately and to be able to communicate it accurately. If we believe in the inerrancy and infallibility of Scripture, how obligated are we to communicate it to others in the same form and fashion in which God gave it through the inspiration of a Spirit of God moving men to write down the mind of God on a piece of paper that it might be delivered to you and I as true and trustworthy in the 20th century. And I'll be honest, I make no apologies and hold absolutely no reservations, bar none, about the historicity, believability, and trustworthiness and trueness of that that we call the Holy Bible that begins with Genesis and ends in Revelation. And I know that John has for years taught that from this pulpit. That's why you are such a strong congregation. Because the one thing that God can bless is His Word and people that are believing it and living in it. And watch the disaster when we don't. In chapter 2, the text says that God commanded. And when Eve reported it to Satan, it was merely, this is what he said. And certainly reduce the impact of the authority of God. There's a big difference between commanding something and having the authority to do it and merely saying it, which is going to be open to doubt and empirical investigation, which comes in verse 6. God said, eat freely. And all Eve could remember was she could eat. And it obscured the, the focus of the freedom that God had given them. God was not there to wrap them up in all sorts of things that they couldn't do and be the cosmic killjoy that limits their enjoyment of life, not at all. He said, you can do it all. But this one thing. But all Eve could remember was, yeah, we can eat. God said, you can eat from any tree. Eve said, we just eat from the fruit of the trees and really narrowed the scope of the freedom in her mind that God had given. God specifically said, the one thing you can't touch or eat of, can't eat, Eve added touch, we'll see that in a minute, is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And he was very specific. And I would believe that the words that he used, the very words, should have been hints to the mind of Eve of why she could not eat. But when she reported it to Satan, she said, it's the tree in the middle. But you know, there were other trees in the middle. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden along with that, totally removing the specific identity and thus the warning for the prohibition. Eve added the little phrase to touch it, and we're not sure whether in her adding to it she did so in a detrimental sense or she merely was amplifying on what God said when He said, do not eat, but she certainly added to what He said and could have been easily misinterpreted. God said, in the day that you eat thereof, thou shalt surely die. Very specific about the immediacy of judgment. You eat it, and you will die. And when Eve told Satan about it, there was no mention of time. And that urgency and immediacy of judgment was totally ignored by Eve. And if all of that wasn't enough, perhaps the worst of it all, 
God literally said, the Hebrew text, if we were to translate it, it's just two words. And He said, dying, thou shalt die. Strongest way He could have said it to make sure the certainty was unmistakable to His audience. You know how Eve translated it? Lest you die. Which puts it in the sense of, of it's a possibility. It's a maybe. But there's certainly no absoluteness about what's going to happen. And that's the way she reported it to Satan. But do you know whose mind she really was talking to? All of that time, the seed of doubt that Satan had planted was beginning now to germinate and spring forth and would bring forth not blossoms of beauty, but those that would poison the world forever. Well, a lot of doubt in Eve's mind. But I trust in your mind there is no doubt about the Word of God. It's very clear in itself about its quality and about its character. In Psalm 119, verse 89, it says this, Forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven. And the word of God is settled eternally. Cannot be altered. Cannot be changed. Psalm 19.7 says that the law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. And the word of God is sure, and it's true, and it's trustworthy. It's sufficient. 2 Timothy 3.16-17 says that the Word of God has been given by inspiration of God. It is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, and instruction in righteousness, that the man or woman of God may be adequate, thoroughly furnished unto every good work. And what you and I need to be Christ-like is right here in the book. And we need no more, particularly doubts and questions about whether it's true or not. Isaiah 55 says it's successful. Whatever God sent it forth to do will happen, regardless of who opposes it. And if all of that is not enough, Revelation 22, verses 18 and 19, says that the Word of God is secure. It's unchanging, it's immutable, and whoever would deign to tamper with the sacred Word of God will have the very things that he added or detracted from it heaped upon his head in judgment. And the anchor that Eve failed to use is the winds of Satan attempted to blow her off course only to wreck upon the shoal waters of the deceit of Satan was her absolute faith in the Word of God. Boy, what a battle. It involves disguise, doubt, dialogue, and just to prime your minds for next week, because we're not going to get done, I'm going to look just for a moment at verses 4 and 5, and we'll close. For Eve, she's been set up, and in verses 4 and 5, Satan unloads his blatant denial of God's Word. Look at what he says. It's very clear. The serpent said to the woman, you shall surely not die. For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened. You'll be like God, knowing good and evil. 
And in that one short paragraph comprised of two sentences, there are five of the most deadly lies the world has ever heard. They have been reproduced and are being heard across our world today. Next week I want to look at how that's being done. But let me just quickly give you the lies. I'll just read them and number them. Number one, in verse four, he says, you will not die. He denied the reality of death. And by implication, number two, he said, God's word is unreliable because that word of God, thou shalt surely die, is not true. Number three, he says in verse five, you will be like God. And the subtlety of that is it's a half-truth. They were, in a sense, like God, knowing good from evil. But unlike God, we'll see next week, we're unable to handle the knowledge of evil, because with it they sinned, and God and His holiness did not. Number four was this. God wishes to exclusively maintain His uniqueness, Eve. That's why you can't eat of that crazy tree. And he's not so much interested in protecting your sinlessness. And number five, and it's the implication of all of it, is Eve, I, Satan, have your best interest at heart. Believe me, not God. Compare our words, thou shalt surely die, and thou shalt surely not die, and decide for yourself, having investigated it with your own mind, who's to be believed. Those are the five lies that Satan foisted upon them. Number one, you'll not die. Number two, God's word is not reliable. Number three, you'll be like God, a half-truth, which is a lie. Number four, God wishes to maintain his uniqueness rather than protect your sinlessness. And number five, I have your best interest at heart. Believe me, not God. Well, you and I need not, like Eve, be vulnerable to the attacks of God. For not only are we not ignorant of His schemes, for they're all exposed in the Word of God, but God has given you and me the mind of Christ. About a year ago, a dear lady in our congregation gave me a little scroll, which I had framed. It hangs right at the front door of my home, and I try to read it at least one a day. And I share it with you in closing just before we pray. And it says this. It's entitled, The Bible. This book contains the mind of God, the state of man, the way of salvation, the doom of sinners, and the happiness of believers. Its doctrine is holy, its precepts are binding, its histories are true, and its decisions are immutable. Read it to be wise, believe it to be safe, and practice it to be holy. It contains light to direct you, food to support you, and, and light to direct you, and comfort to cheer you. It is the traveler's map, the pilgrim's staff, the pilot's compass, the soldier's sword, and the Christian's charter. Here heaven is opened and the gates of hell disclosed. Christ is its grand subject, our good its designed, and the glory of God its end. It should fill the memory Rule the heart and guide the feet. Read it slowly, frequently, and prayerfully. It is a mine of wealth, health to the soul, and the river of pleasure. It's given to you here in this life, will be open to the judgment, and is established forever. It involves the highest responsibility, will reward the greatest labor, 
and condemn all who trifle with its sacred contents. Let's pray together. Father, as we bow our heads this Lord day, we would know that apart from the revelation of your word, we would forever be lost in the error of our minds and those untrue things that Satan would have us to believe. And I would pray for everyone who's in this auditorium that they might fix their faith firmly upon your word and forever believe it and live by it. And in it we read that the one who practices sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. No one who is born of God, however, practices sin, because his seed abides in him, and he cannot sin because he's born of God. For it is by this that the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. For anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. My friends, the Word of God says that in life eternal, we have one of two fathers. Either Almighty God, who's revealed His mind and His Word and His redemption in Jesus Christ, and it's in Him that you and I, who were once lost in sin, are now found to be righteous, and in that are given the gift of eternal life. And if you've named the name of Christ, thank God for that. The day He opened your eyes that had been blinded by Satan, so that whereas once you were blind, now you see. Perhaps you can't answer that question that God is my Father because I've never received Christ. And my friend, the Word says that by default, your Father, whom you'll follow for eternity, is none other than Satan himself. And I would urge you where you sit right now to turn away from the kingdom of darkness under the domain of light and under Jesus Christ. Invite Him to be Savior and Lord of your life. Let Him transform you from who you are in sin to that that would be pleasing in the sight of God. Perhaps you're here this morning doubting God's Word. My friend, there's no reason for it. It will lead you into disaster and sin as that doubt led Eve, and I would urge you to turn from your doubts and by faith to affirm your allegiance to the Word. Or perhaps there's a division in your home, a cleavage between husband and wife, parent and child, or even between believers in this fellowship, and you've but set yourself up for the attack of Satan. You need to rejoin that relationship, find your strength and mutual accountability and, and unity, not in division. Father, you know our needs and would pray this week you would protect us from the wiles of Satan. Bring us back that we might continue to learn of his ways only that we as soldiers in the army of Jesus Christ might be fully prepared to fight on your side. 
and to be joined with the victor, Jesus Christ. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.